Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Investing Club, the place investors go to learn tips, tricks, and stories from other investors in the field. If you feel we provide a value to you, go ahead and hit that thumbs up, share, whatever it may be. And if you'd like for us to cover a specific topic, let us know in the comments or reach out to us through our website. Today, we have a very special guest, so buckle up, grab your pen and paper, and enjoy the ride. Right, we are live. Brian, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? Doing good. It's Friday afternoon. We closed a deal last week, um, which was uh, a heavy lift to say the least. Uh, so I'm I'm ready to to cruise into the weekend and enjoy what's going to be a very hot weekend in Nashville. But um, with Father's Day, I've got two little boys, and um, the beer will be cold, and we'll be doing some grilling out. So it'll be fun. I love it. Well, first, congratulations on the deal. It's always a, it's always a fun thing to have happen going right into a holiday here. Now, I'll tell you, we were originally supposed to close it the first week of April. I had raised um, $8.2 million of equity, really solid deal in Kansas City with Garmin and Cargill, just great tenants. And we were using CMBS, which is what, a lot of what we do. And uh, we were just finishing up the paperwork. And then the world went sideways. So we had to get a new lender. I had to backfill about a million and a half of equity. And um, the, the seller was very accommodative. So that was good. But obviously, that was a little give and take. And um, really proud of my team for getting that thing over the finish line because it was it was work. It really was. So that is awesome. Well, congratulations. I know that COVID yeah. has had, a, had an impact on a lot of people's businesses. So yeah. um, it's good to hear you guys got that done. Um, but to get us started, why don't you just, you know, tell everybody who you are, where you're from and uh, how you got started in real estate in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. So I'm a, a New Yorker who uh, married a native Nashvilleian. So we met <laughs> in college, went to law school, um, moved here about 15 years ago. My wife's family has a family office here um, that's been in the commercial real estate, private equity world for a long time. So when I joined the family board, I got exposure to some of the funds we were investing in and some of the sponsors and GPs that we were um, doing co-investment with. Uh, fell in love with the business, wanted to start my own, uh, wanted to be an entrepreneur. So 10 years ago, uh, I launched our first fund. Um, we raised a series of, of small funds um, over the course of five, six years. We built up a portfolio of about $250 million of commercial real estate in the Midwest and the Southeast. We recapitalized that with an institutional partner. And then two years ago, I took a team with me and I launched um, a pure co-investment syndication platform specifically geared towards individuals, families, independent RIAs, basically taxable investors. And we, like I mentioned, the deal last week was our sixth acquisition. So we only buy multi-tenant office properties. We focus on secondary markets in the Midwest and the Southeast. And I've really, over the course of my career, tried to simplify things. And so we focus on three things. Given our product type, we're trying to give investors access to office opportunities that otherwise they wouldn't have exposure to. We try to give them somewhere between a 7 to 10% yield depending on the asset and the credit profile 
um, as well as the location. And then we really try to focus on the tax benefits of direct real estate ownership. In my experience, a lot of sponsors and GPs who maybe have institutional LPs or are just um, starting out don't fully grasp the power um, that accelerated depreciation, cost segregation analysis, structure and return of capital as opposed to dividends. It can be really meaningful to people in their K-1. And so oftentimes we can um, structure things so that you're getting an 8 to 10% yield annually, but your K-1 will actually show a loss um, or a very minimal gain for the first one to three years. So you can offset gains elsewhere, um, et cetera. So I have a CPA, uh, public accounting tax uh, controller in-house um, who helps make sure that we're doing everything we can on that front. And so those are three things that we do. Um, we try to do four to six acquisitions a year. It really just depends on finding deals that we like, uh, that we find attractive. I love it. I love it. And actually, uh, um, me and my partners got into buying uh, mobile home and RV parks just for for that tax reason. So um, a lot to unpack there. I, I love uh, everything you're doing. Um, so it sounds like, you know, however many years ago, um, you know, you got married, you kind of married into the industry. Um, you got introduced to commercial real estate through your wife's wife's family. Um, they kind of you know, they, 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 they put the bug in you, you, you loved what you saw and you said, you know what, I got to do this on my own. You jumped out, started your own firm, did 250 million in acquisitions. Um, and since then you've, you're, you've branched out into different syndications. Um, and your main, your main goal is multi-tenant office with in secondary markets. Is that, it's a lot to sum up, but does that kind of put you in a box? That's a lot to sum up. Uh, we focus on that 10 to 20, $25 million acquisition price. Um, that's the only thing that I would add. And I would also add that I made a ton of mistakes the first time around on every facet of the business. I continue to make mistakes, but um, hopefully new ones, not repeating old ones. So. I love it. I love it. Perfect. So, um, yeah, I want to delve in a little bit more into your business. I mean, it sounds like you got a lot of wisdom to share here. Um, so, you know, you, you got started. You, you already had a little bit of a background with your with being in your in your wife's business, um, and then you jumped in. You started doing things on your own. Can you kind of tell us um, how was that experience? What were what were the big uh, lessons learned that you know that you just didn't realize going into it, and um, and kind of what have you learned since then? Yeah, um, I continue to learn every day as I make mistakes, but. I think the most useful thing and the hardest thing um, when I first got started out was my father-in-law, who um, is a trauma surgeon, um, took a company public in the 90s, just a very impressive guy, very intimidating guy, um, <laughs> if you don't know him. Um, he was very encouraging of me to start the company. We think of the family partnership as a way for us to either be of service or to be entrepreneurial and create wealth for our own families and generations. So half the family are kind of entrepreneurs, the other half are healthcare folks or teachers, et cetera. He, um, he made three introductions for me when I started. And he said, listen, I'm going to make these three introductions. You can tell everyone in the world that I'm an investor with you. Um, but that's the extent that I'm going to help you in terms of raising capital. And that was really frustrating at the time because I know that he could pick up the phone and make 10 phone calls and bring in a lot of money, but it taught me the hard way 
of raising capital through the coffee meetings, the drinks, the lunches, asking for the intros, trying to get the the referral, just ground and pound. And um, that's what I've spent my entire career doing and really started to embrace it. But it was very hard at at the beginning because I was expecting a lot more. Um, In terms of uh, mistakes or lessons learned, one of the big ones early on for sure was um, we were doing some things in Nashville. My partner and I had, and I had an idea of what we thought would be cool in terms of real estate deals and, and investments. And they were fine. We got very lucky because we were in Nashville and experienced this, this timing of, of being caught up in this huge growth. Um, but I realized after two or three years, I was having trouble raising capital. It's, I thought it should have been going quicker. And I kind of pressed pause and I went around to all of my largest investors and my most logical investors, people who I knew should invest with me, but weren't for some reason. And instead of me saying, here's this cool, shiny object, you should buy it. I actually listened to what they wanted. So I said, if you're going to invest in commercial real estate, what would be the exact return profile? What would the ticket size be? What would the experience be like for you? What would you want ideally if you could just paint a picture? And I really pivoted toward just providing a product that they wanted. And once I started doing that and listening to my you know, logical investor base, I started raising exponentially more capital. And that was a big lesson for me that you know, if you want to scale the business and grow the business, you don't have to sacrifice your um, creativity, but I think you need to be realistic with, with what your audience wants. Um, and my audience, they really wanted office deals because a lot of them had exposure to multifamily, exposure to triple net retail, exposure to self-storage, but they weren't able to get access to office and they really wanted a, a quarterly coupon. They just wanted that cash flow. They didn't care how cool the building was or what it looked like necessarily. They wanted that yield. Um, and so I started just trying to find deals that fit the profile and when I did that, I started clipping two, three deals a quarter um, and started taking down some bigger deals. So I think that's, that's a big lesson for me. I could delve into a million different things that I've learned, but those are, those are some of the bigger takeaways for sure. No, I love it. I love it. Um, I mean, that's it. the thing that kind of rang true for me and everything that you just said was um, kind of uh, either you're following your, your own creativity, your own expression, or you're following kind of what the market wants. Um, obviously there's a middle ground there, but it's really difficult to, to, uh, when you're, when you're going down a path, you really, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you want to express yourself, you want to, you know, build something. Um, and it's hard to, to pivot and make sure that what you're actually focused on is what people want. Um, because in the end, that's what we're here for. We're here to provide a service. We're here to, to give people what they're actually looking for. And so it sounds like that was a, a hard lesson learned, um, as you went and you started trying to raise capital, um, once you were out on your own there. So I, I love that story. Um, I want to unpack that a little bit more um, before I do, though. So do you guys do like value add or do you do new construction? Yeah. So these are all stabilized. You could call them core or core plus. You know, my New York City investors would call them core plus just because they're not as familiar with a Kansas City or a Richmond or a Cincinnati. But if you're located regionally close to one of those places, you are probably consider these deals core. So typically we're 85% uh, plus occupied day one um, with probably a five plus year weighted average lease term. 
So nice stability. Um, oftentimes we see fact patterns where a local group had bought the building originally. Um, so they nailed the location because they're, they're local executives or professionals, but they oftentimes put too much leverage on the deal and they don't manage it as a professional asset manager would manage it. So oftentimes we're coming in and just right-sizing it in terms of lease rate, occupancy, and credit. Uh, but no, these are day one cash flow properties. Great. I love it. Um, so, I mean, you've mentioned it multiple times. One of the, one of the most difficult parts about your business is raising capital. Um, so, you know, if there's a lot of people out there, maybe not in, um, you know, office buildings, but in multifamily, um, in other types of commercial assets who are, you know, they're struggling to raise capital themselves. So um, if you could give kind of a bullet point, maybe top three um, pieces of advice for people who are looking to raise capital, uh, what would those pieces of advice be? Yeah. One of the reasons we chose office as an asset class was exactly that reason. We looked at on the landscape, this is 10 plus years ago, and, and even then, multifamily seemed like it was really competitive. Cap rates were tough. Deal flow was difficult. And office just had less competition within our price range. So I think it's a great question because you have to face the reality that this is a capital intensive business. And it's going to be very difficult for you to scale it efficiently if you're providing all that capital. It's just you don't have the liquidity, right? Oftentimes you're trying to create wealth. Um, so one of the things that I learned very early on was um, having a very frank conversation with every third party service provider that you work with. Um, when I got into the business, I got introduced to, you know, um, PNC insurance folks, lawyers, um, et cetera. And all of them talked a big talk about, oh, I'd love to introduce you to my friends or my buddy would like to look at the steel, et cetera. And they never came through. And so I've started having very frank conversations of, unless you're providing a specific niche esoteric service, like my securities attorney, for instance, um, if you're only going to provide that workflow, it's largely commoditized. So I need more from you. And I'm not saying that you yourself have to invest. But you need to be able to introduce me to folks that do want to invest. You need to be actively making introductions and referrals and being a resource for me beyond just the work itself. And so I would encourage a lot of sponsors out there to reevaluate every third party they're working with. Unless it's mission critical and you don't think you can get that work anywhere else, you should shop it. That'd be my advice. I love it. I love it. And I mean, that, and that's true um, pretty much in anything you do in real estate. I, I got started. Um, I'm definitely not as seasoned as you are, but I've got started in single family and multifamily and now uh, mobile home parks and RV parks and, and shopping around even for contractors is one of the, uh, one of the, the biggest things you can do for yourself um, because it really does. I mean, it matters. You gotta, you gotta find the right person for the job. Um, and that's, that's definitely a bonus for you. Um, so we should have asked this in the beginning, but why, why office buildings? Um, I mean, there's, de de there's tons of different types of commercial assets. Why did you choose to go office? Yeah, um, I found that after talking to a lot of my larger investors, um, oftentimes individuals or even pretty large family offices, um, the only exposure or deal flow they had in terms of office was a Blackstone or a KKR fund of funds or a one-off deal their buddy on the golf course put together. So there really seemed to be a paucity of what I would call middle market sponsors providing accredited investors with office opportunities. And so they were seeing a lot of multifamily deals, seeing a lot of retail deals, triple net, et cetera, but they didn't have exposure to office. And I think it's a misunderstood asset class. A lot of people think 
10 improvement dollars in leasing commissions will kill the deal um, over time. And that's really a function of underwriting. So you have to have enough cash reserves and you have to have the lender relationships to be able to smooth out those distributions over time. And so it was really a function of, I went around to my logical uh, equity sources. They wanted office and um, there wasn't as much competition within my price range. So it was just more inefficient. That makes sense. So you, you saw a market opportunity kind of pop up in front of you. You're like, this is a place I can fit. This is where we can create our company. And you jumped in. And, you know, uh, we've had to cycle through. We're in 10 markets now. Um, we've had to cycle out of certain markets, right? Nashville, Tampa, Raleigh. They're great. Um, but we've had to kind of move on from them. Office was an asset class where we could still buy new vintage buildings with good credit. And even today, we can buy seven to eight to nine cap deals. And that just doesn't exist in multifamily. I mean, cap rate compression has been tremendous. So, um, you know, unless you're going to go out on the limb on leverage uh, or, you know, risk, it seemed like a, a very stable asset class for us where we could find good risk-adjusted returns and still find some pretty valuable um, deals. Just had to be curious about new markets and get our investors to understand that listen, you know, Nashville just doesn't have the value it does. So let's go to Kansas City where you can still get some decent pricing. And once you get over that educational hurdle of of teaching them about these other places and they gain that comfort, um, that's what's really allowed us to grow. I love it. So kind of on that topic, I mean, you mentioned going into different markets. Um, How is it that you decide on a market? Um, I mean, it sounds like you started out in Nashville um, or maybe New York, one of the two. And then you branched out from there. So, so what was kind of take us through the process, the thought process of identifying those markets that you wanted to branch into? Yeah, originally it was just what can we find and where can we go? So our backyard was Nashville. We did deals there. Then we moved on to Memphis, Birmingham, Louisville, because they were within three hours drive and I could go there in a day. We took a step back after that and really started to put together a formula for markets that we wanted to, uh, to um, attack. So the way we look at it is secondary markets we define as a million plus MSAs outside of the traditional gateway, call it Chicago's, New York's, et cetera. And we look for underlying year over year job, wage, and population growth. If those metrics all hit, we go into pricing. You know, what do cap rates look like? What's the cost per square foot? Is there a lot of new construction? Where are lease rates? Um, can we buy a discount to replacement costs? We run all those numbers. And then it shakes out to probably 10 some odd markets right now. But specifically, and what I think is really important for multifamily, mobile home, et cetera, it's in many of these markets that are not coastal, there's no geophysical boundaries, right? So if you go to a place like Kansas City, from our assets to the airport with no traffic, it's literally a 45 minute drive, right? So these places tend to spread. Nashville is the same way. So that's where submarket analysis is key. You can't just go into a market and carpet bomb it and start buying stuff without understanding the underlying dynamics. Because submarkets, people where they live, work, and play, it's typically within 20 to 25 minutes, right? I mean, that's probably your experience yourself. Office is no different. So we typically look for two submarkets, call it neighborhoods, that never experienced more than 10 to 15% vacancy during the downturn. And that have access to single fa- affordable single-family homes, 
um, access to education and kind of that live, work, play, quality of life, cost of living. Um, so once we determine those submarkets, then we go into our price point, which is that 10 to $20 million price point, And we just start, you know, pounding the pavement, looking for deals. So we kind of go top, top down. down funnel in terms of how we look at opportunities. I love it. Yeah. So you're very methodical about it. So you start out, um, you're looking for MSAs that are a million plus, but not in the major metros um, like Seattle, Chicago, LA, et cetera. Um, and then out, outside of that, you look for year over year growth in basically all the different factors that play into um, the growth of an economy. And then you're looking into the submarkets themselves, um, distance from from the major metro, um, the the location of, it sounds like different types of assets within that area. Yeah. Um, and and based on what you find there, you'll you'll pull the trigger on something that's between ten and twenty mil, twenty five million. Um, Part of our investment thesis is um, this maturing millennial generation. It's now the largest workforce population in American history. It's roughly seventy five million people total. And because of two thousand eight, the family formation phase of their generation. I'm barely a millennial. Um, was delayed five or ten years, but it's coming. So as this generation starts to have children get married, they're increasingly making choices about where they want to live, work, and play based on quality of life, cost of living, the ability to afford a single family home, and the ability to send their children to a great public school or a very competitive private school. And so part of that thesis is these secondary markets are going to experience dramatic growth. Interestingly, I think COVID is accelerating that trend, and you're seeing more and more news stories come out that... You know, San Francisco, for instance, multifamily is kind of having a hard time. Obviously, we all know about New York. And I personally think a lot of folks are going to look to the suburbs in secondary markets, um, which is a trend we already saw playing out. But I think COVID is just exacerbating it and, and accelerating it in terms of how quickly it happens. Yep. That, yep. We've, uh, I've had a number of um, other commercial guys on here and they all talk about the, the move to the suburbs, but I've never... Um, I've never heard that thesis about millennials, kind of their their family rearing years have been pushed out 10 to 20 years. That It, it makes a lot of sense. I am a millennial. I'm, well, uh, kind of in the middle of it. And so, um, yeah. yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, w- and when you take a step back and think, you know, <laughs> many of us don't, when we're younger, we don't want the life that our parents had. And if you think about our parents, my parents are baby boomers. You know, they went through the 60s and the 70s. But for the most part, they end up living pretty much the same places that their parents did. And so I think you're seeing this play out with millennials where the narrative on Wall Street was they're all going to live in in tower deals in New York and eat avocado toast and never have children and never have (laughs) a house. And that's just not the reality. Um, and, And so, you know, that was part of our investment thesis. And what we think is once you see that play out on the employee side, you'll see more and more employers try to get ahead of that curve, expand their footprint, because you know, pre-COVID, attaining and retaining human capital and talent was the biggest challenge that employers had. And so that's not going away anytime soon. And so we think you'll see more and more folks look to relocate to a hub-and-spoke model where these secondary markets serve as a big office footprint for somebody's larger stem knowledge-based economy uh users yep that rings uh 100 true to, to everything that i've been reading as well and i like the avocado toast comment <laughs> that was, uh, <laughs> that's true for millennials 
Um, all right. So uh, we do try to keep this to about 25 to 30 minutes. So I am going to move us along a little bit. Sure. Um, we've, we've learned a lot about, you know, how you run your business, what you guys are doing. Um, so now I kind of want to go into a little bit about the experiences that you've had. I mean, you started your own business, so you got to have ups and downs. Everybody does. Um, so kind of take us, you've already mentioned it before just a little bit, but, um, you know, on the roller coaster that is real estate, take us to one of the lower periods and, yeah. uh, you know, the best uh, ex- uh, lesson that you've learned from that period. Yeah. So when I talked about understanding exactly what my investor base wanted and starting to give them that product, we grew too fast. We got too big too quickly. So we started being able to buy an office building every two months, every three oh, months. Wow. And so I raised probably $50 million in three years, something like that. And it was tremendous. And we were very focused on the deals and the deals were fine. Um, What I didn't appreciate and what really started to frustrate a lot of my investor base was we were so focused on doing deals and acquiring because we could, we didn't spend the time or the money on the internal infrastructure to handle the volume of investors. And so bookkeeping, accounting, investor relations, business development, it all went by the wayside and it caught up with us in a, in a big way. And so there was a big backlash from us by investors, not so much because of performance. And I think that's a key for folks that are trying to get into business. Investors will not begrudge you performance. I mean, they understand they're taking a risk. They understand they're working with somebody, but the experience that they expect and the level of experience that you provide to them is key. And so one of the things that I've done over the last two years is completely rework my internal infrastructure. So hiring a controller and paying them, going out and getting a really good controller, right? Somebody for the public accounting, CPA, tax background, paying for Juniper Square, which is a best-in-class investor relations CRM platform, um, these are expensive things and they're painful. I was uploading 350, 400 contacts to Juniper plus historicals. I mean, you can imagine the brain damage, but we actually now get compliments from our investors about how great the experience is in terms of access to the portal. And one of the things also I've been doing is just trying to provide a lot of content and be a resource for them outside of just the deals that I'm doing. I'm not trying to go out and get all their AUM. It's not a zero sum game for me. And so I've started just trying to be more interactive. Hey, if you're looking at an oil and gas deal, if you're looking at a multifamily deal, um, if you're looking to maybe sell your business, call me because all I do is network all day for the most part, right? I'm, I'm focused on raising capital. So I'm running across really interesting people that, that may be able to help them. And that completely changed where I've got 500 some odd investors today and I rarely get a phone call. They all have my cell phone. They can text me anytime they want. But you know, with Juniper and some other things that we're doing internally, um, that was a big mistake and a, and a very painful six months, but I think ultimately made me a much better manager and a much better sponsor. I, I love it. There's a lot of good, uh, good lessons learned in there. Um, what I kind of took from it is that you, that you, uh, struggled with the, the, the balance that always comes with growth. Um, yeah, on one side, you just want to grow as fast as you can. On the other side, you need to build out the systems um, that allow you to grow uh, sustainably. Um, and finding that balance is it's definitely, a, definitely a difficult thing. I mean, we're, we're running into that right now. We've got a ton of leads coming in for, uh, for parks that you know, we could offer on, but um, we, we just can't handle the, the, the influx of leads. So um, 
I like that. And then I also like that you mentioned uh, basically um, systematizing the communication to make sure that your your on you know your investors are are being made aware of everything that's happening, um, and they're not kind of being left out in the dust there. Yeah, I, we weren't doing anything nefarious, but when you when you don't communicate clearly with investors, their their thought process go to the worst possible options, right? Yeah. So now we have a completely transparent system where they automatically get monthly financials. They can go into their website, into their portal, and they can look at historical distributions, historical quarterly management updates, asset level commentary from the, um, the property manager. And it's just much simpler. Um, and, and frankly, we should have been doing it from the beginning, but we didn't know how bad it was until we realized how good it could be, I guess. Makes sense. All right, we are nearing the end here. Um, but before we go, I want to hear one, uh, two more pieces of advice from you. One, um, what is the habit that you feel contributes the most to your success? And two, if you were to go back way back in time um, to the Brian who's just starting out and just give him one small, one sentence piece of advice, what would that be? Pay for an internal controller. <laughs> Do not third party your bookkeeping. It's worth the money. I love it. I love it. Because we burned through a bunch of third party folks and I've tried to not skimp, but not get best in class. And it's not worth the money you save at all. Perfect. Good. Uh, K1s early. What was that? <laughs> Give people their K1s early. Don't be <laughs> the squeaky wheel. And in terms of advice, you know, I think unless there's somebody internal to your organization and the enterprise that is a hundred percent focused on the capital side of the business. If you don't have that person who wakes up every day and thinks about being able to, to raise equity and find opportunities, you will fail. You cannot outsource that. I love it. So always you are the chief sales officer. You are the chief marketing officer. So when somebody comes to me and they want to start a real estate company and they get coffee and talk about, well, first thing I'm going to do is when I raise this capital, I'm going to hire somebody to help me do blah, blah, blah. No, no, you're not. You will fail. Relationships are definitely, they have to be kept inside. You can't outsource that ever. Yeah. I like it. All right. So, um, Brian, you've given us so much wisdom. I really appreciate you coming on here. Um, everybody needs things in return. So if somebody were to bring you something, what would you like to receive? Um, in terms of how to get in touch with me? Uh, well, that's one thing, how to get in touch with you. But also, um, are you looking for investors to invest in your fund? Oh, or are you right. Yeah, no, I appreciate the, um, the, the setup. Um, yeah, we don't have an offering right now. Um, we are actually looking at a number of deals. Um, we only work with accredited investors. Um, so, you know, if you're interested, we have a very um, robust content offering on our website. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, so if you're just interested in the asset class or want to learn about office or some of the things that we do, reach out. Um, however, I can be a resource. I'm happy to. Perfect. And to get in touch with you, um, that's through LinkedIn, correct? LinkedIn or the website, excelsiorgp.com are the two best ways. All right. Well, again, Brian, I know I can speak for everyone listening and watching. We appreciated you having coming on here, um, sharing your wisdom. And for everybody watching, if you want to get in contact with Brian, the, his LinkedIn will be in the show notes, or you can go to his website. Um, sorry, can you say that again, Brian? ExcelsiorGP.com. ExcelsiorGP.com.
And uh, other than that, I look forward to seeing, seeing you guys on the next episode. Thanks, Gabe. I really appreciate it. Everyone have a great weekend out there. Thank you for joining us on the Real Estate Investing Club. If you feel we've provided value, we would appreciate it if you hit that thumbs up, share with your friends online, whatever it may be. If you'd like to share or partner with us on an investment deal, we are always looking for quality projects. Go to www.therealestateinvestingclub.com to get in contact with one of our partners. Otherwise, I hope you guys have an absolutely fantastic day and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. All right, before I officially sign off, I have a quick announcement to make. If you're interested in becoming a passive investor in one of my deals, my own company, Kaizen Properties, is looking for capital partners for our upcoming projects. We invest in what are known as recession-resistant assets, mainly self-storage facilities, mobile home and RV parks, and industrial properties. If you're interested in investing and would like to learn a little bit more about my company, our investing criteria, and some of the previous projects we've done, go to the Real Estate Investing Club podcast at therealestateinvestingclub.com and scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page, click on the invest with us button. That'll pop up the investor form, fill that out, and we will reach back out to you as soon as we can. Or if you prefer a little bit more of a personal touch, you can reach out to me at gabe at therealestateinvestingclub.com. So really, that is it. Again, it was a pleasure hanging out with you guys during this episode, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.